Welcome to the Queen Trail Podcast. There are three different types of radiation, alpha, beta, and gamma. What does this technology do? It's like, well, what can you do with electricity? I just survived 30 years HIV positive. I'm certainly not going to let a little thing like a brain tumor derail me. When I got to 29 pounds, I was so tired, I just collapsed. Everything always goes back to being grounded and centered. It's a mecca for cycling, for sure. Struggle is the neutralizing force. And I said, there it is. This is the right family. I'm, I got like cold chills. It's one lone oak tree right in the middle of the trail. It's beautiful. Hey everybody, welcome back. I hope you had a great week since the last time that we got together. As we're closing down on that one year anniversary of this podcast, I thought I would revisit some of the most highly rated episodes in the past year. So I have somewhere around six or seven clips from a few of the episodes and I will include just before we get to each one, the episode name and number so that you could go back and enjoy it in its entirety. And just before we get started, I wanted to give you an update on some of the things that have been going on in my life. So I just had a birthday and it is the celebration again of my 21st. So what was really cool is I've never had a surprise birthday party, which is, I don't know, maybe it's just like not a Hispanic family thing. But last weekend, you may have seen some of the pictures because I posted them on the social media websites. They're all at the Queen Trail podcast, T-H-E-Q-U-A-I-N-T-R-E-L-L-E podcast. And it's Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I thought I was going to carve pumpkins. I thought that it was just my girls weekend family. And we were just going to bring a pumpkin and just sit around and talk and have a good time and carve these pumpkins. And when I showed up, it was a surprise birthday party. So that was a lot of fun. I got to dress up as a Wonder Woman-like character, even though I was mixing my dress, I think, was Marvel characters. And I was sort of dressed up a little bit like a DC character. So yeah, I mixed the universes. Now some mayhem might occur because of that. And yesterday I spent the day at Tanaka Farms, which is in Irvine. Had such a great time. One of my good, good friends, Robin, and her mom, Kathy, went with me and she got me this farm to table tour and you walk around pick vegetables whatever's in season come back and they serve you this fantastic meal well of course just as we were getting there i saw the tractor pulling people and i said oh my god i want to do that so we got a tractor pulling tour as well and we got to pick a second load of vegetables. So the haul that came home was really big. It was Japanese turnips, kale, scallions, and cilantro. And believe it or not, for the foodie that I am, I have tried turnips before. I've just never made them. So I made turnip, potato, carrot, and leek soup, which was really good with coconut cream in it. Oh my God, it's delicious. And it's even better today. Fun fact on turnips is that if you listen to episode five with Jenny Ruiz, 
we talked about turnips were the original jack-o'-lanterns. And the funny thing is that when we were washing these turnips, Sophie looked at one and she goes, oh, look, there's a little face on there, mom, because rocks dent them and maybe little bugs or something do stuff to them and you end up with these little faces. And I'm like, I bet you that's how the jack-o'-lantern started. At the time when I heard that turnips were the were where jack-o'-lanterns began, I thought, they're not even that big. Aren't they really hard? Well, one, I have a turnip that is like the size of a softball. So I could see how you can make a jack-o'-lantern face on this, which I'm really tempted to do. And the other thing is that soup called for the turnips to be peeled and they are really soft. So you can mash them and turn them into mashed turnips, just like you would mashed potatoes. And I have a couple of turnips left, which is exactly what I'm going to do with them. Anyway, I do want to get back to this medley of episodes. It's going to be a part one medley because there's so many episodes that rated really highly over this past year and with really good reason there. But I'm going to kick this one off with episode 21, Paul Spar, the tech edition. He is the CEO of Spar Group, which is an aerial mapping and 3D scanning and uncrewed aerial system business consultation company. And the company is also pioneering new ways of using augmented and virtual reality, which you probably know as AR and VR, to interact with the data. He's also the CEO of MetaGeo, a 3D GIS platform that brings data from these sensors into the digital world and connects it with the metaverse. His work earned him an Emmy nomination for 3D scanning several Olympic mountain venues in Switzerland, which you'll hear about in this snippet and allowing the audience to use their phones to put the mountains in their living rooms and follow the athletes in AR and VR for the 2020 Youth Olympics. He is also my cousin, and I have always thought he was such an amazing person. So I was very honored that he joined me on this program to share his work. So please grab a cuppa and join Paul Spar and I as we talk tech. And my mom, even though she only had one you know, kid, which is me, she was also a single mother, but she was working full time and going to school full time. So there was always this like strong, uh, passionate presence in my life since I was a kid. And when it got to the point where my grandmother needed to have help and needed someone to take care of her, I became one of the caretakers. And so as I grew a little bit older, you know, I, I got very accustomed to coming over and making food, giving medicines, giving shots. And that's kind of one of the first steps I took towards the medical field. Um, of course, all this time, you know, with regard to technology, I was a big video game nerd, uh, really into computers. <laughs> and actually, uh, Alvina grandma bought me my uh, first computer. And so her buying me that computer, I think was the real first foray into technology besides video games. And I kind of reached this point around that time where I was really into computers, I was really into technology, but I also had a really big passion for taking care of people. And with taking care of her, I learned a lot about medicine. And so this was right around the dot-com bubble burst. And so I kind mm. of had this fork in the road of, do I want to go towards medicine or do I want to go towards technology? 
and, and back then I, you know, self-taught myself how to do some programming and I was, you know, messing around with, you know, building my own apps and stuff like that. But once the dot-com uh, bubble burst, then I was thinking to myself, well, why would I want to go into this industry, which is basically imploded? And I decided to go into medicine because my heart was really into it. And that's how I ended up going down the path of becoming a paramedic. Now, fast forward 10, 15 years, I was a paramedic for a while and you know, I loved it. It was a flight paramedic and I was able to treat and help the people of the Bay Area and really all of California. And it was really an amazing experience. I really love being there and being able to be there with people during you know their darkest hour and be someone that's there to help them. And uh, unfortunately, you know, for me, I had to, to retire medically early. And with kind of the technology stuff that I gotten into when I was younger, I always kind of maintained that. You know, I was into, like I said, video games, I was into computers. Another thing that I was really into was flying ready controlled airplanes. And so fast forward after I retired, I went to school at Cal State Channel Islands and I was actually studying biology. I was pre-med and I was going to go become a doctor. At the same time, I met a really amazing professor who is my advisor and a good friend of mine, Dr. Sean Anderson. Um, he is uh, a huge pillar in the education and the direction that my career in life has taken. Because when I was doing biology, I would start doing some environmental science classes. And then he kind of steered me more towards environmental biology. And in his laboratory, he was doing a lot of really interesting and uh, like brand new cutting edge technology research using environmental sensors, doing mapping and that kind of thing. And so he interviewed me for a research position and he'd asked me, you know, do you have any special hobbies or skills? Do you know technology? And I said, yeah, I'm really into technology. I'm really into building things. Um, you know, my background's medicine, but I also really love flying rear controlled airplanes. And he's like, oh, do you know how to fly drones? And I'm like, well, yeah, they're, they're like uh, rear controlled airplanes. And he's like, well, we're going to start up a, a mapping initiative and start doing mapping. And I was like, awesome. That's what I want to do for research. And so I ended up getting hired on with him and ended up running his entire research laboratory for environmental science. And I led the, uh, the robotics arm of the laboratory. So we were using drones and boats and underwater submarines to do 3D scanning and mapping of coastal environments to kind of assess them for like climate change and various different kinds of like earth movements and that sort of thing. And so that's really what got me into the drone industry is because a lot of environmental science is, is mapping. So you take drones or aircraft or satellites and they have cameras or 3D scanners or special sensors and it allows you to kind of understand the shape of the environment. Sometimes there's uh, different kinds of sensors that allow you to tell the chemical content. So if you're looking at vegetation, you can look at the health. There's like thermal cameras where you can look at uh, moisture content and um, it's got a lot of applications in the commercial world. And that got me picked up by a company called Pix4D, which is a, a photogrammetry company. And photogrammetry is making 3D scans with images. And so I went to San Francisco and started working at a big startup. And that led me to working at Intel Corporation. Uh, and then from there, I worked with the Olympics. And now I'm running my two businesses. 
you know, when you try to describe all this stuff, if you're not from the, the industry, it's like a bunch of jargon and a bunch of words. And so the best way that I can describe it is that the main thing that we consult on with Spar Group is we teach companies how to basically understand environments with map data. And so map data, we also call it geospatial data or GIS data, which is ge geographic information systems. Basically, if you could think of it, one of the most common platforms that people interact with on a regular basis is like Google Maps or Apple Maps. That's a GIS platform. And what a GIS platform is, is it serves you map data and it lets you look. And specifically on those platforms, they're two-dimensional where you're looking from either a satellite perspective or a, um, a drawn perspective. So there's uh, several different kinds of map layers that exist out there uh, from different sources because there's tons of satellites in the sky. Um, but some of those maps are actually from airplanes and drones as well. And so we teach companies how to use map data that's kind of like that, except for the map data that we use is three-dimensional. And so that allows you to understand kind of what the environment is like with regards to like the terrain or buildings, the um, roads, the bridges. Uh, it gives you a digital twin and a digital twin is basically, if you can imagine, you make a, a carbon copy of real life and have it on a computer. And why that's relevant and interesting is because once you have a 3D map or a 3D model of your environment, you can start looking at it, you know, making measurements on it because it's dimensionally accurate, or you could start building on it, meaning uh, when architects use software to, to create buildings, they need to know what the land is shaped like underneath it. And so oftentimes you'll see houses that are built, you know, on the sides of hills or mountains, they need to know what the shape of that mountain is. So they need to know how long each stilt or each, you know, rafter or board or whatever needs to be to make that house level. Same thing goes for roads and bridges. You need to understand the environment around it to be able to build something there. And traditionally, this was all done by hand using measurements, either using a tape measure or a surveyor uh, using a theolodite or uh, other surveying equipment. And so typically they go out there and they take a notebook and they just make a drawing and then add in measurements for each one of these different things. You know, how long this stretch of uh, sidewalk is supposed to be or how long this bridge is going to be. But with this 3D scanning technology, we're able to then have a digital model where you could take measurements from any part of it, right? Because if you had gone to say a house and you're putting on a new addition to a house using classical methods, if you went and measured, okay, this is how big or how long the, the wall is, here's how tall the windows are, here's how wide the windows are, and say that you forgot to make a measurement and you know it's far away, you traveled two hours to get there, you would have to then, when you realize you didn't get that measurement, go back and then recollect that measurement. With 3D scanning, you can make measurements at any time once you have that captured. It's like a freeze frame in time where you can go back and you can look at it and you can analyze it. And because we use both images and laser scanners, you have a really accurate model, but then you also have photos that you can use for inspections. So if you've already built the asset, they can go back and they can uh, inspect and see if it needs maintenance. You know, what's the condition of a roof? Are there any cracks in concrete, that sort of thing. And it serves as basically evidence for any issues that might come up later. So for example, when you're building a building, there's gonna be, you know, 
a plan that's created in CAD, which is computer-aided drafting. So they draw the, the CAD model, and then they give the plans to the construction companies. The construction companies go out and build it, and then they're following the plans. And so as they're building things, if you continuously scan the building, you'll see essentially the building kind of slowly being built up. And then you can actually overlay those CAD drawings and make sure that the, the construction is being built, uh, at, or it, they call it an as-built, and you're seeing if it's built as per the specifications. And so if there's any inconsistencies during the building, you'll be able to say, oh, well, that pillar is actually supposed to be two feet to the left. And if down the road, there is like a crack in the roof or the, you know, there's some structural issues, then there's evidence as to when and how that happened. And so that could be used for insurance purposes as well. Hmm. But um, So but it's a more trustworthy model than what's been around ever before. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a documentation. And so there is uh, issues with accuracy because um, you're only as accurate as your least accurate measurement. And when it, when it comes to making these models, there is varying levels of accuracy. Like for example, Google Maps is not always the most accurate because it's based off satellite data, which is super far away. When you're using drones, you could be really close up and then being closer means that you can get higher accuracy. And so there's also a scale and the scale would be, you know, known measurements or GPS coordinates or that sort of thing. So the data can vary in how accurate it is, but you can get it pretty accurate with laser scanners. And so it's, it's really, that's the commercial side of things. On the video game side of things, the 3D maps that are created using photogrammetry and LIDAR. So photogrammetry, again, is making 3D scans using photos. And actually, let me explain that a little bit further. Photogrammetry is basically you take photos from lots of different positions, and then you can use it much like your eyes work. So what happens is you have two eyes, right? And those are like two different cameras. And so if you look out in front of you at, you know, whatever's in front of you, your keyboard or your kind of LaCroix or whatever, you have a uh, depth perception. <laughs> so you understand how far it is. And if you want to reach out and grab it, your brain is actually using the two images. So one from the left eye, one from the right eye, and then triangulating the distance to that object in front of you because your brain knows the distance between your eyes. So it's, it's really doing a uh, triangle calculation. Now, if you think about having a drone or having an airplane or satellites, and you have multiple photos from multiple different positions, now instead of having two eyes, you have hundreds, if not thousands of eyes of which to triangulate the location of every pixel in each image. And so from that, you can essentially take each photo and have a depth for each photo, which allows you to make a 3D model from that. And so that 3D model is how we basically create an understanding of an environment. And if we're going to be you know, using this kind of model and mapping applications, we're really concerned with the accuracy. But in the video game side, these models are actually the same format. And so on the video game side, we're actually much more interested in how good is it. And so oftentimes, uh, if collected correctly, the data could easily go from one side to the other. But there is differences. And so I kind of specialize in both because I started off on the mapping side. But as I started working more with the data, I started having different organizations like movie studios, video game companies, virtual reality companies come to me and say, hey, we see that you're doing these kinds of things. Could we use these 3D models to say, create a virtual movie set that we could blow up a building in a special effects software and then not actually have to do that? 
because they would not only have to go in and, and draw those things by hand. And so it saves the artist a lot of time because you can 3D scan huge amounts of areas that they would have to normally actually manually draw for both uh, movies and for, for video games. And so it gives them a lot of flexibility and saves them a lot of time. Now, there is a bit of an issue because the scanners have so much resolution that when you try to bring them into video games, the, the models are so big that games almost can't use them. So you have to do a lot of optimization to make them work just because these files are absolutely huge mm -hmm. uh, when they're made. So one of the problems is that you know getting this kind of map data from one place to another, it oftentimes requires like sending a hard drive to somebody because of how much data there is. And so for video games, especially with VR and augmented reality, those are devices that show you, you know, images and they're usually headsets and not all of the headsets have a computer attached to them. So they're not working with like super high powered computers. So you have to downscale the models without making them look bad and be able to be processed on the, uh, the computers that are on these headsets. And so the whole thing with the mapping kind of bled over into the virtual reality space for me, specifically when I was working for the Olympics and we created an augmented reality app. So for those who don't know what virtual reality and augmented reality is, um, augmented reality means that you put on a pair of glasses or some sort of go between, between your eyes in real life. And so with augmented reality, if you have your phone and it's got a camera on it, what you could do is, and if anybody's familiar with a video game called Pokemon Go, you've seen this before. The kid turns on the camera on the phone and then you look at your phone screen and then you'll see you know, what's there in real life, but then they'll put images on top of real life. Like in Pokemon Go, there'll be like a little cartoon monster jumping around, you know, on top of your carpet or table or whatever. And so that's considered to be augmented reality. You're, you're putting something that's not there on top of reality. And then virtual reality is where you put on a headset and you completely escape reality. You have screens inside of a headset and they have two different screens and they show you two different images Again, that's kind of like the depth perception. So you see the two slightly offset images and that gives you the perception of 3D and you're completely in this 3D world. And as you move around, it senses, you know, you're looking left and then your environment changes. And so AR, VR are two technologies that kind of go in separate directions because uh, augmented is adding on top of and then virtual reality is completely immersed. But in this case for the Olympics, what we did is we found a really novel way to show the games to people that weren't able to attend. What we did is we went to four different mountain venues in Switzerland, and this was for the 2020 Youth Olympic Games. And we 3D scanned these mountains with drones, took those models and we used photogrammetry. We processed them into really photorealistic maps of the area. And then we took those models and we worked with a bunch of teams to really clean up those models and make them small so they'd be able to load on your phone quickly. And then with our partners, we made a map or sorry, an application that can bring those 3D models and maps onto your phone. And so you install the app and then you can switch between the venues you'd like. So if you want to, you know, pick the, the big mountain, you could pick the big mountain in, in Switzerland, or there was other ones in France as well. And so you could select the mountain that you wanted to see the venue in, and then take your phone and turn on your camera. And then you'd be able to see something like, uh, a coffee table or any flat surface in your home and you'd be able to take that mountain and put it virtually on that surface and then once you put it there then you use your phone as kind of like a looking glass into this model where you can 
kind of actually act like it's sitting there in your living room. You could take your phone and walk around it and you could see all the detail of the mountains. And as you walk closer, it gets bigger. So it's much like actually having the mountain in your living room. And so the other part that was really neat about it is that we were able to take all the information from the athletes, their positions, and put them all on this interactive map. So you can see where the, uh, the winners were you know, ahead of the different folks on the track and you'd be able to see you know, the stats, who's winning. And then there was also 360 video cameras that were placed throughout the courses. And a 360 video camera is essentially a camera that has lenses in all directions. And when you use an app uh, like augmented reality or virtual reality, and you look at these cameras, you can actually act as if you were there and you can kind of spin in a circle. And as you spin in a circle, what you see in front of you is going to change. And so in this case, we had some of the uh, 360 cameras and you, it's a little bubble that you can click on top of the mountain. And then you go into the, the 360 camera. And if you're watching an athlete, you know, come down a ski jump, you can put yourself underneath them and put your phone over your head and watch them jump over your head in virtual reality. And so you could also kind of follow them down the course because uh, you could jump around to the different 360 cameras that were there. The following is a excerpt from episode 22, Jan Luke Cycling and Overcoming Hurdles. She's the coordinator for cycling, running, duathlons, triathlons, and adventure runs in Fayetteville, Arkansas. She's formerly from Southern California and spent 10 years as the Western Regional Coordinator for USA Cycling and another 16 years as a board member. And she's also the past president for SCNCA, which is the Southern California Nevada Cycling Association. So please grab a cuppa and join Jan, Luke, and me in this episode of In the Company of Friends, episode 22. I was hired as the assistant manager, food and beverage manager, and our chef was very much into cycling. And we worked really long weeks at that time. As some of you might know, opening a restaurant or opening a hotel, the hours are relentless. We were putting in 90 hours a week from day one. And that's what he did to kind of, you know, get rid of the stress. And he invited me on a ride one day and I had a bike and we went for a ride and I got hooked and he was very much into bike racing. And I started riding with him every single day after we would get a break and he and I would go out for a ride. And I lived in Palos Verdes at the time and I started riding from Palos Verdes down to the Strand, which was where the Sheraton was. And then we'd ride out to Malibu and back. And then I would ride home late at night sometimes. And uh, yeah, I just got, I got completely hooked on riding. Yeah, that's quite a ride. I haven't done the hills in Palos Verdes. Uh, those are really steep, but I do like to take Palos Verdes Drive North into Redondo Beach and come back. That's probably the easiest hills along that Palos Verdes loop. In fact, I prefer it because if you go onto the Strand or any of the other beach 
paths. There's a lot of pedestrian traffic. There's dogs. There's kids that are running across. You have to really watch out for a lot. Sometimes there's radio-controlled cars that are crossing the bike path. So that's really such a great ride. And Malibu back to Palos Verdes, how many miles is that? I think like it was 24 from Palos Verdes there and then back. So 50 miles. Nice. Yeah. And it's always great when you get introduced to a sport by somebody who is an enthusiast of the sport themselves. Oh, absolutely. And it was funny because our sous chef also started riding with us. So then we had a group, (laughs) which was really fun. I rode every day. I rode seven days a week and wasn't sleeping too much. I mean, we, all of us were sleeping four or five hours a night because we were just working so much and getting out on the road was, wow, a way to relieve stress. And that was definitely a stressful time. Yeah. I would imagine that would be kind of like your reprieve from it. (laughs) It's kind of meditative too, because you're, you're there in your own space that entire time. Definitely. Absolutely. So I ended up having knee problems. And this was before bike fit was a thing, a real thing. I kept riding and I kept working and I worked in high heels every day. And uh, my knee started giving me some trouble. And I went to see an orthopedic doctor and he told me, quite frankly, I needed to stop riding. And I I was addicted and I couldn't stop riding and I ended up having knee surgery and I ended up going to a shop where I met someone who was bike racing at the time and I met the owner of the shop and I started becoming a regular at the shop even though I was still on crutches. Eventually, I ended up going to work there and I surrounded myself with bike racers. I worked at a place called King's Bicycle Store in San Pedro. We were a pro shop and that's kind of how I was introduced to bike racing. Wow. Yeah, King's was really big in the bicycle world. It was, definitely. It was one of the top pro shops in Southern California. Yeah, what a shame that it's gone. Um. Was there any advice how to get fitted for a bike, how to keep riding? Yes, of course. Once you're introduced to a professional shop, then there was bike fit. Bike fit has come a long way since then. And it was done a little bit differently back in the day, (laughs) as it were. And I ended up getting involved with bike racing. I became an official And eventually, I was offered a position as the district representative for Southern California. And eventually, that position began to grow. Just going back to bike fit, because I think some of the listeners might be interested in this, and it surely could prevent some injuries for any rider who is finding that riding a bicycle is not as comfortable as it could be. Can you explain bike fit to the listeners? Oh, sure. Um, So if you go into a bike shop and you just purchase a bike off of the showroom floor, you need to get it fit. And there are shops that do fitting. And I would definitely recommend going to an experienced bike fitter. You can usually find those in any city. 
I think we have two here um, in Bentonville, and that will definitely continue to to grow over time. It costs about two hundred and fifty to three hundred dollars to get bike fit, and somebody who does bike fitting for a living knows all about your physiology and the bike that you have purchased. A custom fit would include a full assessment of you and your bicycle and your biomechanics, an evaluation of your contact points, cleat adjustments, power analysis, aerodynamic optimization, the ability to apply your personal measurements to any bike brand in the industry. So if you had purchased a bike prior to getting a, a bike fit, then you would take your bike. Uh, there is products out there that will help determine all these things along with somebody who is a specialist in bike fitting. And you might need to replace some of your equipment if you purchased a bike without actually getting fit. So you might need a longer stem, a shorter stem, height adjustments on your seat. There's a lot that goes into it, but I highly recommend anyone get a bike fit, whether you have a new or a used bicycle. It can keep you from having back pain and just be able to optimize your your riding. And I can see why that would be worth the cost of it because you know somebody might say oh that's just too much of an expense but to be able to have a bicycle that works for you and works for your body mechanics optimally is really worth that expense and preventing injuries well so many people injure their knees because of improper seat adjustment so yeah i think it's it's really really important I belong to the South Bay Wheelmen. I became the district representative for Southern, it wasn't actually Southern California, was split into two different areas as well. So we had the South portion, um, San Diego, and up to Orange County, I believe. And then there was Los Angeles County, uh, the Valley area. And then Central California, which was the Santa Barbara area, that was on its own. So there were four different regions in Southern California. So I had Los Angeles area and then became the district representative for Santa Barbara. And at some point in the 90s, that all changed and I became the regional coordinator, which was all of California. You're kind of the liaison between USA Cycling and the promoters, organizers, and the racers. And so I was in charge of doing upgrades for riders. So riders are given categories, and then you go from one category to another. So there would be, back in the day, there was category four, which would be a beginning category, and then category one was the highest category other than pro. And so I was in charge of giving riders upgrades. I would be the liaison between the race director, organizer to USA Cycling. I was in charge of developing the racing calendar, testing of officials, uh, annual meetings, that kind of thing. Wow, that's 
a big job. It was a big job. And eventually that big job turned into an even bigger job when I took on all of uh, the Western region, which was Oregon, Washington, Alaska, Hawaii, all of California, Idaho, and Nevada. That's a lot of states. So, (laughs) (laughs) yes, it is. A lot of territory to cover. Clearly, cycling is very popular. Do you have any idea, like, how many big racing events there are? Oh, my gosh. Today, there aren't nearly the number that there were back in the the 80s and 90s. The 80s and 90s, uh, you know, I call it the golden age of bike racing. Since COVID, especially, and since the Lance Armstrong era, mm-hmm. uh, racing has has gone the other direction. But we're seeing the comeback now with new events taking place. There are some issues, though, about road racing because it's very difficult these days to get permits in order to have a road event. Uh, criterium racing has become the standard really just because closing down roads to have a bike race is very difficult. Yeah, I imagine with insurance and the distance that you have to have to have an actual solid race. I mean, you can't just close down a couple of blocks. You have to close down miles. And residents don't want to be inconvenienced. And so it has become a real issue for organizers to find a place to have a road race. I would imagine because you're also competing with marathons, which will also close down roads. Yeah, in big populated areas, that's really the issue. And here I've moved to this beautiful haven for cycling, where there's lots of road openings to have events. So uh, I think road racing will start to bloom again, but it will not be in the metropolis areas where you can't close down a road. It'll be in the areas where the population is less. Up next is episode 25, Paul Napora all about Lomita, history, pizza, and rock and roll. And in this clip, we talk about the time that Paul was a pizza delivery driver. This was such a fun episode to record. It's always fun talking to Paul, who is a historian of everything Lomita, which is a small city in the South Bay area of Los Angeles near Torrance. He's also an educator, an artist, a rock and roller with some great stories, And he's the creator and curator of two pages on Facebook, Lomita's Distant Past with Pictures and Old Postcards from Southern California. And they're both great places to get some Los Angeles history and just a little nostalgia. So please grab a cuppa and join Paul, Napora, and I as we talk pizza. So I have to ask you, because Hmm. when you were going to school, you know, like everybody else, we all have to have a job. I did everything 
when I was going to school from being a shoe salesperson, I ended up with over a hundred shoes and it was the Imelda Marcos collection, but I had the coolest shoes. That was one of my favorite jobs. I was a switchboard operator, like a bona fide pull the wire out of the board and stick it into the right extension type of thing. Wow. But the one thing that I have to say about that time period is that I changed jobs frequently during those years. But I noticed that you stayed. You were a pizza delivery driver for 20 years. (laughs) (laughs) And loser. (laughs) Well, I mean, even I, I wouldn't say that, but even after earning your degrees and becoming a teacher, you were still delivering pizzas. So let me let me just correct you there. In June of 2006, I received my credential. And that same week, I quit the pizza job. Sacrilege. I had some money in the bank. And I just said, I need to just cut myself off from this. And so I just started applying. Scrock hired me 31 bucks an hour to teach digital animation. Yeah, and compared to what were you making as a delivery driver back then? Well, uh, minimum wage was about seven, maybe six or seven dollars. But the with the tips and all that. So you went from seven dollars to thirty one. Right. But with all the tips junk, I always made more than 20 bucks an hour. Take home was most of it. But going from. Pizza delivery to $31 an hour uh, was a big step. And before that even happened, I got hired to teach ceramics for the summer. So that was my very first contract. It began right after school got out. So June 2006. Wow, that must have been glorious. That was so cool. So I had the confidence. I quit the pizza place. Nice. And I have never since, uh, and I've been gone from there for woo, 16 years, I guess. Uh, I have not had a pizza since. <laughs> okay, so do you like pizza? I do. Ah, what's your What's your favorite toppings? Um, I like vegetables. Not too many because I don't like a wet pizza, but just vegetables. Yum. Yeah. I, I'm trying to think of what my favorite is. I think I think I really do like vegetables too but every once in a while i will throw some some sausage on there i do like a, a good barbecue chicken pizza uh-huh. yeah we used to experiment with all sorts of stuff we'd make breakfast pizzas we'd make there's all sorts of weird things mm, it's fun that sounds like fun i think pizza is perhaps the most perfect food on the planet i mean it's an edible plate with a bunch of stuff on top of it that tastes really super good. And mm-hmm. it tastes, to me, it, I, I will eat a cold slice of pizza the next morning. But I do have an air fryer, so I like to get it just, it, it just gets crispy and tastes even better. Sure. What made you stay for, what did you work mm-hmm. for the same chain for 20 years? Pretty much, yeah. Um, I'm a fairly stable, consistent person. I don't like change. And I was making more money than anybody around me. I had a house. I was paying the mortgage. Truck was paid off. I had a family. And it all worked. And I did it. 
delivering pizza. Again, I'm still in the same spot. Lomita, I'm here. Mm-hmm. And that's been your constant companion throughout. Yeah, I suppose. Lomita, the South Bay, punk rock. Love it. What else is there? I mean, my gosh. Um... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Pizza, Pe- punk rock, and <laughs> going to the shamrock. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't, that's not a bad situation to be in, that's for sure. No. And you got free pizza, right? Yeah, pizza. I used to bring pizza home all the time. There's always pizza in the fridge. Rock hard. <laughs> um, yeah, it was all right. And I did pizza in high school, too. So from high school all the way till I finally got my teaching credentials, I was pizza delivery guy. So honestly, I do find it astounding that you could do so much on a pizza delivery budget you know um that's awesome that's awesome things were different back then listen you could buy a house real close to the beach for 150,000 back then this was the early 90s oh my gosh I am constant not constantly okay so I periodically periodically, angry (laughs) Uh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. I mean, you know, if I had a time machine, I'd, pro- I'd probably go back. I mean, I was very young, very young in the 80s, but the 80s and early 90s were magical mm-hmm. in terms of pricing and what was available. I remember I had this amazing job. I worked in healthcare, and of course, I was single, and I would add to my hundred plus shoe collection regularly and go shopping. And I got my first car at that time. Everything was really inexpensive. So yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, It's all relative, right? You might not be able to do that as a pizza delivery driver today, Mm. but I do find that really amazing. And I've never worked as a delivery person. So I imagine that you have some really crazy stories. Uh, yeah, some one time. So I had a truck and I would throw the pizzas in the bags. I put them in the back of the truck. And so I got to the address, which was an apartment complex. And I grabbed the top bag, which had the pizza for that particular address. And I ran across the street and a car full of teenagers pulled up behind my truck and they got out and they started. Oh, no. They started jacking my pizzas. And I yelled across the way. I yelled. I said, hey, knock that off. And one of them looked at me and goes, fuck you. (laughs) Oh my God. I saw, I just shook my head and they took my pizzas and the bags and they drove away. And uh, that was one story. There's tons of them. Oh my God. Anyways, makes you feel pretty stupid. So I I told my boss, I go, you know, I probably should have put the pizzas inside the truck and locked the door and told him I'd buy more bags. And he's like, don't worry about it. Shit happens. And so we just moved on. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Was there um, a really good story, something that really surprised you during that time period? Did anybody give you like like a $1,000 tip or something like that? Oh, okay. <laughs> so I was delivering a pizza right 
down the street from Wilderness Park. And the guy was in the garage and he goes, hey, would you do me a favor and put this shelving unit in the back of your truck and just drive it around the corner and put it in front of my neighbor's house? He wanted it. And I said, okay. So we put it in and my my tailgate wouldn't close very well. So he goes, just just try. And so I, I'm pulling on the handle and the handle breaks off and I'm pissed off. I'm and so we deliver this thing around the corner and I come back and he gave me like an extra 10 bucks. And I said, great. And he was like, what's wrong? And I said, so I did you a favor and the handle on my tailgate broke off. And he goes, well, it was probably old. And I said, but it's broken now. I mean, now I need to get that fixed. And he goes, I'll tell you what. And he turned around and he grabbed a stack of records and he handed them to me. And he goes, take these. My wife's going to be pissed, but take these and sell them. And I'll bet you'll get a lot of money for them. And then you can get your truck fixed. And I said, Oh, okay, whatever. So I left. I had no idea. And, um, that evening I got home and this is easily 22 years ago. And I'm looking at these records. He gave me a stack of Beatles albums. And one of them was the very... Right. One of them was the very first uh, American issue of the Beatles album that they first came out with when they were on the Ed Sullivan show. I don't remember the name of it, but I put it on eBay and it went for like $150 back then. Wow. And I was able to get my tailgate handle for, I think it was about $60. I still had some Beatles records left over. I might even have a couple. Oh my gosh. But. Yeah. That was really nice. And I bet you that his wife did hit the roof when she found out that she, he gave away the collection. Quite possible. It's the hmm. Beatles, man. Yeah. <laughs> this next clip comes from episode 26, Danny Miguel, the filmmaker edition. Danny Miguel is a filmmaker, a director, producer, editor, and a good friend of mine. He is the entire film package. And in this clip, he's going to talk about the filmmaking process, along with some great stories about the art of cinematography. So if that is your passion, this is definitely a clip that you want to listen to. And also, we mention a project that he worked long and hard on and distributed through Amazon Prime in June of this year. It's called the Mexican Express. So make sure that you check that out. It's it's a great documentary. And so please grab a cuppa and join Danny and me as we talk film. Your most recent project is also a documentary. It's called Mexican Express, and it's currently in post-production It's a race story that follows the journey of the Esparza brothers from Long Beach, Rick and Fred, who built and raced a truck that was called the Mexican Express all throughout the 1960s. And it's a story of excitement and heartbreak and determination and wins in Long Beach and at the Lions Drag Strip, which was in Wilmington, California. How did you hear about this amazing story? Yeah, I love your intro, by the way, for Mexican Express. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I, I have a good friend named uh, Ed Moy, who I met at Catalina Festival in uh, 2014. 
uh, both of our films uh, didn't get in, but we got to hang out in the VIP lounge. And uh, nice. he submitted a film called Aviatrix, which eventually got awards uh, in preceding festivals, including Culver City. And he supported my film, like, discredit. And uh, I think it was in 2018, Ed Moy got me involved with this uh, race car story. And it makes sense because he's from the Bay Area. He was here temporarily in Southern California, finishing up some other festivals from his other movies. And it's, you know, it makes sense that I DP it because the story takes place in Long Beach and I'm from Long Beach. <laughs> totally. Yeah. So, you know, he kept, I kept it in the back of my head and uh, let's uh, overlap it with one of Anthony's fights in 2017 in Palm Springs. One of the, uh, the guy who's who going to film for Mexican Express, he lives in Palm Springs, uh, Rick Esparza. He's the youngest brother of Fred Esparza, the owner of the Mexican Express. So I meet Rick for the first time at the Agua Casino. My first time, like, really meeting Rick. And he tells me, like, I'm excited you're going to shoot it. He's also from West Long Beach, which is where I grew up. Uh, basically, like, 10 blocks from my house. <laughs> no way. Yeah. Did you live in the same neighborhood at the same time? No, I think I think he he moved 1996. So yeah, kind of like around the same time, kind of around the same time. Yeah, because I got here in 1982, and wow. he left in 1996. Yeah, and I, I thought it was uh it was amazing. I had no idea he was from the West Side. You just you know when you know like okay, I'm gonna be working with this guy for a while. <laughs> That's super cool, and I also get the sense that the film has some elements from like the world's fastest Indian, which is a phenomenal film. Um, and Ford versus Ferrari in there, uh. like the idealism, the, de- the determination, that need for speed specifically. So <laughs> what was your inspiration for the cinematography in telling this story? There's, there's not a lot of films. I know that it's shot in probably the lesser known part of Long Beach and the West Side. So I wanted to make it look solid, capture, you know, the landmarks, see some of the like the small businesses like the taco trucks. And then the main artery, the historic artery of West Long Beach is a uh, Santa Fe Avenue, which stretches all the way to uh, the port of Long Beach. So mm. I wanted to make sure I wanted to show what these brothers grew up from their neighborhood to the market where they found the race truck to uh, the Lions drag strip, what, what it used to be at the time, which is a container field now, and then driving down Santa Fe Avenue, ending at Rick's school where he got into a lot of trouble. <laughs> so just kind of filming like a, a day in a life. Yeah, yeah, he was a troublemaker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. That um, energy that got him in trouble is also the energy that made him such a successful race car driver. That's right. That's right. If it wasn't for his, his older brother, Fred, who told him like, hey, man, if you want to help me in my race car, you got to stop hanging out at the park and, you know, beating, beating up people and stuff and get out, stop hanging out with the gangs and stuff. So wow. and that was that was back in the 60s. I mean, today, yeah, it's still prevalent, unfortunately. So I can imagine how it was in the 60s yeah. and stuff. So, so it's kind of like a, a saving grace for him. Yeah. That's amazing. So you shot and you directed and you edited the film on this, I mean, there's a lot of, it seems like there's a lot of driving, a lot of action. Um, there's also the interviewing process. What did you find to be the challenges of this film? 
Yeah, I like when you bring up uh, the word challenges, especially three challenges. I guess the uh, one of the main challenges was when we're editing it, we'll, we'll shoot here and there, edit, go back and shoot some more and edit, just try to like really craft the piece. And I remember I showed one of the uh, cut in the later stages. I showed it to Ed. At this point, Ed Moy uh, was already a consultant. We both co-directed on the first day and gradually he, he gave that project to me so that's that's another interesting effect but i guess to answer your, the first challenge was really trying to make sure it wasn't too information driven because i know for the families they will enjoy it the friends will enjoy it but how can we re- really make this appeal to you know to the masses and so ed told me to you know go back to the coverage overview get out index cards write okay act one act two act three What's really going to be the, the driving force? How are we going to keep making it engaging, but still making it breathe each time? And he sent me like a ton of movies, a ton of documentaries. I got a lot of awards. I'm kind of blanking on them right now. But um, he said, yeah, you just got to try to like make it more engaging and stuff. I really took that to heart. And then I was able to get several people as a consultant, including uh, Damien Apunte from 4th Street Productions. He gave, he gave his take on it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Damien Apunte <laughs> is such a great guy to get for consulting on edits. He just does magnificent wow, work. Wow, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So he, he was a big part of it as well as the, uh, oh, back to the, uh, the cinematography question. He was he was great in capturing a, a lot of the, uh, the aerial stuff in, in the film nice, as well. <laughs> nice. Um, what did you find gave you the most satisfaction in shooting this film? The most satisfaction in, in shooting this project was kind of being adopted into this this family with, with the Esparza family with, with you know Fred and his his wife hanging out with Rick a lot. I'm getting a chance to hang out with these people as they're living their full life, you know, and you know they just give you a lot of wisdom. Just you know, as you always get a lot of good advice from uh, people in that age. I, it was one of those projects where you know it, it found me, and I became really appreciated as the years went on. I just, I just kept, I got more excited, <laughs> like with every edit, like how can I make this much better? How can I make this much better? And even though there was a lot of work, I was lucky to have this project thanks to Ed and met some wonderful people, like you know Rick, Fred, his wife, and uh, especially you got to hang out with a historian, Long Beach, California historian Claudine Burnett. I got to hang out with her. I got to hang out with uh, Kenny Youngblood. I got to fly out to Las Vegas and interview him. He's a motorsports artist who knows a lot about the uh, Alliance drag strip. So I was just, it's just the overwhelming sense of learning the subculture, being being part of it, hanging out with the real people and just how, how so nice these people were <laughs> to me. Yeah. You know, it's got a lot of uh, nostalgia to it and excitement too, at the same time, just, you know, rich in history and personalities as well from the racers and everybody that was involved in it. It's going to be on Amazon Prime. We Ideally, you want to have it uh, simultaneously having a couple of uh, screenings at special venues. One is the uh, Long Beach Public Library. And uh, we have some other car museums in mind. I think it's going to be an outstanding film. You've got a kid who's kind of hanging out with gangs and you've got somebody else, you know, his brother finds his car. They come to get like, it's just all this unexpected stuff that ends up being this big, giant, amazing story. So I'm really excited. Thank you. Thank you. There's something like I wanted to say about, I'll kind of rewind a bit, but I like how we're still on the topic of documentaries. 
something I really enjoyed, if I'm comparing the two, is that something that has in co- that I have in common is kind of like in fiction when you're working with like amazing actors and documentary when I'm filming and interviewing like the real people and their professions and how they grew up. It's just as ex- it's the same excitement. Um, and you know this as an interviewer with, with your program as well. I always just get good energy from people and you'll be surprised how a lot of people like to talk about themselves and their experiences and it's just so rich and uh, that's what I love about just just working with um, in documentaries and, and narrative. I see that uh, same that commonality or that same energy whether it be actors or you know real people. I just I just love that energy. For sure, there is this great energy that's there about getting the story directly from the source and hearing the excitement in a person's voice. It's it's so raw and realistic and relatable, just on the edge of your seat listening. So for sure, that's always really awesome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you, you probably have a lot of those experiences yourself, meeting so many people and interviewing them. I do. You know, I really enjoy listening to people tell the story of their lives. Uh, There's always something really interesting. There's always something to take away from it. It, It's just a great way of connecting with people and also validating that your experiences really are everybody's experiences and just um, learning how somebody else got through through something similar is just really kind of magical to me. Oh, wow. Did you do a couple of TED, TED Talks, Sue? <laughs> well, I haven't done any TED Talks, but th- that would be so awesome. And I love human stories. And I think that you've got another project. At, at, the, at least I thought that's what I saw, is that you've got an upcoming project that's also a documentary and it's untitled right now. Oh, um, yeah. Thank you for uh, looking that up. Um, that's that's kind of going to be one of my, it might be the next one or it might be the second project going back into the narrative realm. Oh, okay. Yeah. This was a s- screenplay I, I developed, I think it was in 2016. It's a, it's a road trip story that takes place right, a coastal town by Highway 101. I submitted mm-hmm. the screenplay to the Oaxaca Film Festival in 2018. They accepted it as one of the finalists, as one of many finalists, which was basically an invitation to have it reviewed within a roundtable, a key scene from the script. You're going to pitch your story in, in front of a, you know, a good amount of people. After the festival, someone's going to call you and give you a kind of one-on-one, like, here's what we can do. Here's how we can change the structure, you know, give us from an, another industry pro. And that's what happened. And uh, it was it was an amazing experience. So this was like, I mean, if, if I were to compare it to Chautauqua International in New York, they were both equally amazing experiences. Chautauqua, I got I got the silver award for discredit. This one, I didn't get an award, but I got a lot of feedback. It was a head start for this screenplay. And it just felt good taking that little step to get somewhere in the door to see where the screenplay is going. Kind of like in discredit when I decided to start location scouting at the at the civic center this was a nice step for okay let's see where this bigger screenplay much more bigger than this credit will will take me if i take the first step i mean that's a little bit of a nail biter too because you have to do that in front of so many people and, and it's just an idea and it just often feels like 
it's just an idea among thousands of really good ideas because you have to be really good at your craft to get into a lot of these festivals. So I know that that's a little bit nerve wracking, but I think you went to Oaxaca. That's right. Yeah. 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 What an amazing trip. Like that's the best souvenir (laughs) that you could get. Yeah. And some of the friendliest people there, I really felt like they're sincerely want us have a good time. It was, uh, (laughs) it was great. Yeah. I love that. Oh, the food. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and the food. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. Oaxacan food is really delicious, amazing food. I actually have a story about that. This is ages ago. I was a very picky eater, <laughs> which means that like I basically pretty much ate nothing. <laughs> but we ended up going to Mexico with this couple and we stopped at a restaurant that was pretty amazing. And the guy, Jesus, that we were with, knew everybody in this restaurant and everybody in this town. And so he didn't even order off the menu. He was just ordering all of this different food that was coming to the table. And they made like fresh guacamole on the side, just very elaborate entertainment type of, you know, kind of like when you go to Benihana's or something and the chefs are back there just, you know, chopping stuff up and the knives are flying and they catch them and that sort of thing. (laughs) And so Here's this um, guacamole being made at the table side. And I didn't like guacamole. I bet you that was the best guacamole in the world. I love guacamole now. Um, So I didn't eat the guacamole. And, you know, he was a little bit just kind of concerned. And I said, no, don't worry about it. I just don't like guacamole. So he goes, well, you have to eat something. I'm going to order something special for you. And I'm going, no, 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 no. Don't order me anything special. And he's like, no, 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 no. I really need you to eat something. So... I said, well, what did you order? He goes, it's a surprise. You're going to love it. He was so excited to order something very special for me. And I was terrified. (laughs) And so finally, I'm like, you really have to tell me what you ordered. And he goes, well, there are these very special wheat lacoche empanadas. And I go, what's wheat lacoche? And he goes, it's a fungus that grows on corn. Those were his exact words. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, I can't believe that he just ordered me fungus that grows on corn. This sounds horrible. (laughs) And it's a good thing that I didn't know what they call it here in the States because they call it corn smut. And it is a fungus and it ruins, supposedly it ruins the corn. But in Mexico and the Oaxaca areas and many areas of Mexico, they eat this. It's it's basically yeah. a mushroom. So here comes this platter of empanadas. And I'm thinking, I can't say no, because everybody's looking at me. I cut into one of them and it was just like this river of blackness that came out of the middle of this empanada. And I thought I was going to die, <laughs> but... I did take a deep breath. I steeled my courage and I took a bite. It was the most delicious thing that I had ever tried in my entire <laughs> life. And um, it was, <laughs> oh, you would never know it. And so these mushrooms or this fungus takes on the flavor of the corn and it's also nutty at yeah. the same time. And they mixed it up with some cheese, which is why it was like this black river coming out of this empanada. So it was like cheese and mushrooms and this essence of corn and phenomenal, <laughs> phenomenal stuff. So um, yeah, they do have very good cuisine there. That's for wow. sure. Wow, 
talking about a, a rich experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, oh, I wanted to ask you if you had one thing, I know that we already shared the, you know, remain focused until you're done and then go and party <laughs> um, bit. But if you had advice for up and coming filmmakers, what would it yeah, be? So I, I guess if I were to give uh, someone, someone who's getting into film uh, three things, I would, I would say that the first one would be uh, perseverance. So what does that really mean? I'm kind of thinking like perseverance and like the fundamental sense from from prep to production to post-production to distribution and just kind of knowing like you kind of want to, you don't have to be amazing at each one when you're starting out, but kind of get the fundamentals, you know, during prep time while you're meeting your, your actors. And there's going to be a time where like tomorrow's the first day of shooting and I, I it's already like one in the morning. You just know that. <laughs> So yeah, you feel like you're already at the finish line, but nope, it's time for round two. That's part of the checklist. Yeah. Now you're going to production, reset those emotions, you know, have someone drive you to the set if, if you're not ready to drive. So, you know, be safe. Um, for sure. Yeah. And then there's like stuff like fundamentals, like you want to make sure like in prep you have equipment check the day before, you know, a couple of days before shooting. You want to make sure you have a, a good maybe a DIT or a third camera assistant who knows he's going to able to, if you're shooting on film, knows how to puts it back, you know, into the, the black bag, or if you're shooting on digital, which is very popular now, knows how to transfer the footage safely and maybe do a triple backup. So the worst thing you could have is like, everyone has a great shooting day. You know, everyone goes home safe, but like the, tr the footage isn't able to transfer after production. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. That is really a bad <laughs> thing i mean you put all of that out there it's it's like just imagine you have just finished some big document project and your computer crashes it's that same feeling that just that pit in your stomach that it's not getting transferred over yeah yeah <laughs> it's gonna get like those fundamentals ahead of time at least in prep so your production is smooth you know and, and in production there's like there's always like these two things. It's like get the shots, and then make sure everyone gets home safe. That's that's the most important thing. <laughs> it was just two things in production, and then oh yeah, transferring sure. the footage obviously. And then you know when you have post production, and make sure you have a schedule when you're when you're editing it. Try to make sure okay, I gotta get scene scene one by this time or scene two by this week. So you know you're not dragging your feet. And when you're done with the film. You want to make sure you have some kind of distribution plan, or at least have an idea of it, because you can make this really amazing film. You know, you persevered, you know, prep, production, post-production. You made this amazing film and it only gets seen by your family and friends. But you want to get it out there, have a marketing strategy so it could, you know, you have some kind of budget for the film festival. So it doesn't just play at one film festival, but it gets out into a lot. So um, it's, that's always that's always good to do right away before putting it online right away, which is nice too, if you want to do that right away. But it's, the festival experience is always, is always nice. You know, it's seeing it in a movie theater. Yeah. yeah absolutely. So that, that's my take on perseverance. Just try to like, you know, think about your checklist from prep to production, post-production and distribution. Just know a little bit of that stuff. And you're going to get better each time when you, you gain these new layers of skills. You know, make sure you, you put the amount of A game through each one so you have a nice, a nice balance through it. And uh, so that's number one is perseverance through the checklist. The second one is uh, 
education. Try to watch films of your favorite directors. Find out your favorite directors' favorite films. Find out who they're inspired by. Uh, try to find a way to take an uh, elective film class. It will definitely help you learn about the appreciation of you know film and how it got started. And if you can go to film school, that would, if you have that luxury, if you have that time and that energy, that that would be even amazing. But I think you can still not go to film school and still be an amazing, talented filmmaker. And that, that's number two is the, the education part, just having that appreciation, learning about the theory in film. And uh, number three, just uh, having ideas that you're serious about, ideas that you're serious that you're going to keep going no matter what. And, and, you know, that can be an endless font if you just continue to cultivate it, don't throw any idea away because that idea that might seem silly can turn into something really amazing. And I think just to quote Sean Milani, as you said earlier, you're never too old to break dance and you're never too old to create a film and uh, create that magic. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, when you're making films, I, I love all of that advice. I mean, that is really thorough, really good advice for um, any up and coming filmmaker. What do you, Danny, Miguel, hope to impart to your audience when you're making films? What is your goal in creating this really amazing media to transport people into another world for a Thank you. While? I like how you said transport. It's just, this is what we do as, as, as filmmakers. Yeah, I love that word. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So to answer that, what I hope to impart on audiences is to hopefully impact them in some way that may influence their personal life indirectly. And it maybe it can uplift them the same way that movies have done for me in, you know, in the eighties and the nineties, that, that feeling when you, after you just watched a movie, you're leaving the theater with your family or your friends. You just share this experience with a bunch of people in the audiences. And just that feeling when you're walking out, like, you know, what, there's something I could probably change in my life, you know? So that's, that's what I want to impart with, with audiences that there's, there's some hope out there, you know, whatever they may be going through or they might be feeling good already and maybe they can just, they can feel good and they can, they can share the story with other people, you know, and, and hopefully it resonated with them. This next clip comes from episode 27, Anna Marin off to the races Anna Marin is owner of Saints or Sinners Racehorses, LLC, in partnership with her husband, Hans Marin. And she is also my honorary cousin. I spent nearly a lifetime thinking that we were cousins, and it wasn't until quite recently that I found out that we're not. But that just tells you how close our relationship is with one another. And if you have ever wondered how racehorses are named, this is the clip for you. So please grab a cuppa and join Anna, Marin and me as we talk racehorses. Some of the horses that you've got in syndicate, like Beer Can Man, yeah. got a first place at Del Mar in 2021. There was a Sorrento Stakes win. Yes. Also at Del Mar in 2021 for Elm Drive. 
first place for Mecklenburg. Mecklenburg, yes, yes. Mecklenburg at the Golden Gate Fields where Hans liked to go to so often. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And um, there was a third place for Strong Light at Churchill Downs, the same track where the Kentucky Derby takes place. Yes. Yeah. So that is so exciting. What does it feel like when your horses come in first place or come in in the top three? Oh, you know what? It is absolutely incredible feeling where they come in. Again, you always want to be proud of them because you don't want to just make it about being in the winner's circle. Every horse, you know, runs hard. Every horse, you know, they do what they're meant to do. But when they win... And they know it. They've got this little sass about them sometimes. Um, they know it. It is just such an amazing feeling because you know that everything that goes behind the scenes, all the workers, all the, the groomers, the, you know, the exercise writers, the trainers, just everybody there are doing their best to keep that horse in top-notch condition, right? And then they win. And then you run to that winner's circle to get that photo with the horse right there with you. It's amazing. You know, the jockeys, the feeling that they feel every single time. It's just a great feeling. Sadly, because we have horses in in the East Coast and in the West Coast, not always can we go to every race and see them win. Sometimes I post things like that. We're watching it from the hotel room, a race, you know, because we're (laughs) somewhere else. Or Hans has stopped in the middle of the road and pull over to the side just to watch a race because it means <laughs> every race means so much to him as it doesn't matter the amount. It's just, it just means you invest a lot. You know, they're not cheap. Even if you are in a syndicate and you buy 10% of it or 20% or 25%, it's still, it's a lot of money. So you do invest and you got to watch what you put your money in. So it's just amazing. We, so sadly we can't see every race. So now that we're building our own saints or sinners barn, I I told Hans, I go, well, you know what that means. We need to go see these horses race because who's going to be there cheering them on in the winner's circle if it's not us? Right. (laughs) We don't have have a syndicate. We don't have groupies, you know, that people to come. So it would be very important for us to be there for that winner's circle if they win. So we need to be there. And he goes, oh, I'm very aware. I go, okay. So we'll, we'll be traveling west a lot now, too. <laughs> oh, that's so exciting. So the barn's going to be on the west coast. Well, no. So we have horses right now with Foley, with West Point, and that horse, that colt, Silver Bowl, is in Churchill Downs. And then the other ones that we have, the other four, are with Glatt. Mark Glatt is our trainer for the west coast. So Mark Glatt accompanied us to the Florida sales and helped us pick the sales according to what we wanted to buy according to budget. You know, we are a lot like Eric Reed, uh, Rich Strikes Trainer. He, in one of the interviews, he says, I'm not about the million dollar horses. I'm just about the little ones. And Hans has always said, I don't get into those high price horses. I mean, and I'm not saying it's lower end, but you know, our first horse that we bought at the Florida sales, um, it hasn't been named yet. We're still waiting on that. It was $50,000. So we're not going to be the folks that buy a million dollar horse. We would rather use that and just buy a spread because we believe just like Eric Reed, look at Rich Strike. That horse was claimed for $30,000. That is our mentality too. Like you don't have to have a million dollar horse, you know, to take you to the Derby or take you somewhere. To be a winner. Yeah, to to be a winner. Yeah. 
Exactly. Yeah. So we are of that belief. When I heard Eric Reed say that, I went, oh my God, that's exactly what Hans has been saying this whole time. That's why he kind of wanted to go on his own because he goes, I can go and say, I want to buy that horse. Maybe others have no, don't see much hope in it, but Hans does. So, you know, we could be right. We could be wrong, but that's the name of the game. It's anyone's it's anyone's game, right? Basically, after Rich Strike, everyone says that now. It's everyone's game. Exactly. Exactly. It is. Yeah. It is. Um, you never know. And, you know, something interesting that I wanted to get to is that you said that that first horse that you purchased is not named yet. Yes. And there's a lot of um, tradition in yes. naming racehorses, you name them by their pedigree or their bloodline, their lineage, historical meaning of the uh, dam or the sire, which in non-industry speak is the parents. So is that why it's not named yet? You're still going through all of that research? Great, great question. So many people ask us that all the time. How, how do horses get these weird names or crazy names or whatever? <laughs> so I'll give you an example. Um, yes. First, to answer that one question, we have to submit it to the jockey club who authorizes or approves the names of the horses. They go through to make sure you're not duplicating someone's name. So you do submit it and it, it's waiting for approval. So two of our horses are waiting for approvals that, that we've named. Um, one horse named How Be It, all one word, was already named when we claimed him. So that's his name. So let me take you to the process of Jackson Traveler. He is Steve Asmussen, who is a well-renowned trainer, also trains Epicenter, who will be racing in this Saturday's Preakness. Epicenter also ran in the Derby, came second. So Jackson Traveler has a great trainer with uh, West Point Syndicate with Jackson Traveler. They said, would you guys like to name this horse? And we had a grandson who was born too early at 24 weeks and passed away at seven weeks. And we always told our daughter that if we ever could name a horse, we would name it after baby Jackson. So now comes this opportunity and we're supposed to name this horse. And we were told the pedigree comes from, it's a Munnings horse is what we were told, Munnings. And I'm thinking, well, what is Munnings? I had no idea. Well, I started researching Munnings and where did the name came from? Way back in like 1917 uh, to the 1950s. 50s. There was a painter, a horse painter named Alfred Munnings. Somewhere along that line back in the day, someone named their horse Munnings after Alfred Munnings. And so that's how it's known now. It's a Munnings horse. And a lot of times you'll see when they call the daddy, they'll say it's a Munnings horse. And you just go, oh, okay. But a lot of people don't know what that means. I had to research it. So I said, Munnings. And he's a horse painter. That okay. So I went that angle and I started researching all the paintings that Alfred Munnings did. If he ever named one named Jackson, just by chance. Nope, didn't get that one. But I did see where he painted a horse called Traveler. And I said to my husband, there you go, Jackson Traveler. And we submitted it and it was approved. Wow. So that's how kind of you start, that's how we do it. Um, the ones that we're naming right now, I think one of the horse that is on waiting, I think the daddy is called Wicked Strong. 
And so Hans had a lot of fun trying to name that one. I'll tell you, I'll do a spoiler alert. We don't know which one got approved, but we submitted Devilish Desire and Saintly Strong. Oh my God, I love that. (laughs) Yeah. And the second one that we're waiting for, I'll do a little spoiler alert, is our granddaughter, Aria. And um, this filly comes from a Bolt Dioro. And a Bolt Dioro is one of the top sires. It has sired amazing foals. And so one of them that we submitted was called Aria's Lightning Bolt. Oh, I like that. Yeah. So we'll see if that one gets uh, approved. So since we started that with Jackson, we're going to do that with Aria. And then uh, we have another granddaughter named Alessandra. So we'll see where it goes with that one too. But right now, the first filly that we get will be for our first granddaughter. And that would be Aria. So yeah, we're excited. Aria's lightning bolt. Up next is a clip from episode 28, April McCarthy, Summer Sunscreen and Skin Care. And it does not have to be summer for you to benefit from the information on this clip. April McCarthy of South Bay Med Spa is a clinical esthetician with 25 years of experience. All of the information here is timeless skincare. So please grab a cuppa and join April and I as we talk skincare. You know, just that loss of um, elasticity and tightness that you get as, you know, as you get older or with skin damage from from the sun, from environmental factors, smoking, that sort of thing. And genetics. genetics. Yeah, it's nice that these procedures are available. And one of my goals with skincare, like Medispa level skincare specifically, is to destigmatize the idea that it is a luxury or an extreme. Um, because I also want to address the costs in comparison, especially to what women spend annually in terms of skincare products and cosmetics. According to a 2021 report, and I'll put the links in the show notes. In 2020, the cosmetics industry was valued at $483 billion, and it's expected to rise to $716 billion by 2025. And it's estimated that the average American woman spends around $3,800 annually on beauty products alone. Honestly, that's no surprise considering that a tube that's less than an ounce of anti-wrinkle eye serum can run like, you know, $25 on the low end if it's on sale and upwards of, you know, $150 or more on the high end. And that's just one product. Then you've got sunscreen because you can't forget the sunscreen, moisturizer, serum, scrubs, BB creams, and they're all expensive. Yeah, it's it's overwhelming as well because there are thousands of different skincare brands on the market and it can be very um, fad, like oh, this brand right now is so popular, but nobody really knows why. It could be because they're advertising or the bottles are cute. You know what I mean? Totally. Yeah, I see that all the time. And you're just going, okay, wait a minute. You know, like, is this really going to be 
that much more cleansing than anything else. I mean, this isn't anything new. This is something that has probably been around forever. And all of a sudden, it's being marketed as something really fabulous. And you get it, you try it, and it's either not good for your skin, or it's not effective at all. I about probably at least 10 times a week, I get a client asking me about this skincare brand that they're using, and I've never heard of it in my life. Wow. There's just so many of them. And like I said, it can be very overwhelming. And I think the majority of like the average population probably buys their skincare, just what we call OTC over the counter skincare. And in my opinion, some people might disagree, but I feel like that's the worst thing you can use on your skin because companies, they mass produce these products in factories and they're so full of preservatives and parabens and fragrance and dyes. Like, why do you need your moisturizer to be blue or pink, you know? Mm -hmm. And that stuff is so bad for your skin. It causes inflammation on a daily basis, which breaks down the integrity of your skin over time. And when they're being mass produced like that, they're a one size fits all type of product. And it can't can't fit all skin types. Definitely not. And a lot of people tell me that they'll try something new and it makes them break out. So it's hard when you're constantly bouncing around from brand to brand trying to figure out what works for you because a lot of times it either makes them break out or it makes their skin really dry or really oily. So they're just, you know, just hopping around from brand to brand to brand trying to find something that works instead of going into a skincare specialist like somebody would, if they had any other issue going on in their body, they would go see a doctor or a dermatologist for advice. You're right. This is one of the only niches where we're listening to companies, to manufacturers who are putting out products that are not necessarily tailored to one's needs. Exactly. And a lot of times I've found too over the years, especially with acne, not just teenage acne or, you know, acne in your 20s, but adult acne, a lot of times um, that is either caused by a hormonal imbalance or some sort of food allergy. Mm. Yeah. So many times, like, you know, I have people come in and they're like, I've tried everything under the sun and I still have acne. I've been on Accutane. I've been on retinol. As soon as I get off of it, it comes back, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, go get a hormone test, go get a food allergy test. I had one gentleman in particular could not figure it out. Um, I sent him to go get a food allergy test and come to find out he's highly sensitive to an enzyme in cheese. He cut cheese out of his diet and his acne went away. And then, you know, home home care, skincare is 90% of your regimen as far as your healthy skin because that's something you're using every single day as opposed to coming into the office for your treatment once a month or once every three months or however often you, you get in there. So what you have at home is really what's what's keeping your skin the healthiest 
And we come to the last clip of this episode. It is from episode 29, Melanie Morose Edelstein, read all about it. She is a librarian and information specialist, a news journalist, and an Emmy award-winning television news producer. She's also the current writer for Palace Verdes Magazine and the CEO and personal historian of Legends and Legacies, which is a personal history service. So please grab a cuppa and join Melanie Morose Edelstein and me as we talk news. I wanted to be uh, like an actress. And my dad said, I'm not going to send you to college to be an actress. No way. That can't be your major. So I thought I love to read. I, I knew I was a good reader and a good writer. And I was like, okay, well, I could go into journalism. Maybe I'll be like a reporter. I could be on camera. Yeah. Though, right? That was like my 18-year-old self-thinking. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll just, I'll, I'll go into that because, uh, A, it takes no math. <laughs> I don't want to have anything to do with any degree that has any math in it because it cannot add and I don't <laughs> understand numbers. So I was like, okay, no math. Plus, maybe I'll be able to get famous, like, by being on camera. Yeah. Plus, I can read and I can write. I'm like, okay, so I'll do journalism. My dad's like, okay, off you go. So I chose broadcast journalism, and then I realized I didn't really want to be on camera. I was like, oh, no, that's not really for me. I couldn't do that. Okay. I was like, no, 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 I want to write that. I realized that the power is really behind the scenes. That's where the words come from. That's where the decisions are made. So I'm like, I want to be like a behind the scenes sort of power player. I don't need to be on camera anymore. I don't, I don't need that. And I went into television and I worked. I was living in Tampa, Florida, and I worked for the NBC affiliate WSLA there. And I started as a, a 6 a.m. associate producer. And my shift used to be from midnight to like, you know, 10 a.m. Oh and then we would, it was terrible. And I hated the hours, but I loved the rush of producing the news. It was like really great for me because I'm a bit of a control freak. So I went from a social producer to a producer on the early morning show. And then they moved to a noon broadcast. Then I eventually started doing a 5 p.m. and a 6 p.m. and an 11 p.m. All this local news. So I, I really enjoyed that. And then I got lucky because this general manager that I had worked for in Tampa, he moved to LA to begin KKL9 News. And it was to be the first local 24-hour news in the country. And they were kind of modeling themselves after like a CNN. So this guy, Jim Saunders, moved to L.A. Um, the station used to be KHJ, and it was purchased by Disney. And Disney hired Jim Saunders to build, like, this revolutionary television studio, news production palace type of thing. So Jim went around the country and plucked around all the people that he knew, and he hired me. He said, come to L.A. Wow. and produce for me. I was like, okay. I'm on the way. Here we go. And they moved me. And so I worked for Disney. So it was like the golden years. So they moved me across the country, lock, stock, and barrel 
they wined and dined me. It was like, oh like my a God. Fairy tale. Maybe I will be famous after all. So they found me a location person who helped me find my own place. Anyway, they really treated me well. I came to work for uh, KCAL. I was in the very first class of hires and they were located on the Paramount lot and we had two sound stages that they had converted into make our um newsroom and studio spaces in there. And so I lived right on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Vine and I could walk to the Paramount Studios and I was like living the dream. Oh, it was great. I won a couple of Emmys working for them. It was tons of fun. It was amazing. Good times. Great success. My husband was, oh, he was my boyfriend in Florida. I'm like, going to LA. See ya. Love ya. And I'm like, uh, so six months later, he's like, how is it out there? Should I come? I'm like, I don't know. It's great. Come if you want to. Don't come if you don't want to. Showed up. Wow. A couple of years later, we got married. Here we are 31 years later, still married. So KCAL was really fantastic. I, I mean, it was just a, it was a really wonderful experience. Three Emmy nominations, one win. What what were were there particular stories that drew the attention to your talents? I mean, I just think, yeah, I'm a good writer. Mm-hmm. And I worked for a guy, you know, who really believed in me, who really liked me when I was young. And he, he he was like a mentor kind of guy. He's like, I know you can do this, and I want you to come out here and do this. I got lucky because he was moving around, and he got this takeout thing. And I mean, it's about how talented you are. Certainly, I would never deny myself that. But it's it's a lot about what you know and how savvy are you. And you know, I got lucky. I don't know. It was great. I was fantastic. It was definitely a really cool, amazing situation until it wasn't. So I was working and rocking it. And I went from producer to an executive producer and to then field producing where I was on the field. And my husband is a production uh, sound engineer. So we're both in the same business and got married and continued to work. And then had my first child, came back to work. I got pregnant with my second. And uh, I had a full-time nanny at home and I was paying her like, you know, the hours were absolutely insanity. I was uh, working as like a, an executive producer at that time. And when the news broke, you worked. I mean, it's not a business for the faint of heart and it's really hard for like a new mom. I'm like, have two kids. What am I doing? Like I'm on the freeway, I'm schlepping up to Burbank and I'm traveling, chasing the news. And so is my husband. And two people in the same business in this business doesn't make for uh, for an easy marriage. And we were paying half of our salary to our nanny, who was at my house 12, 14 hours a day. And I was like, what am I doing? You know, I don't know that I really want to do this anymore. I want to do something else. And then like the, the, the universe intervened because there was a job opening and me and a man who I was hired with, he was in my class, we were hired at the exact same moment in time, same education, same trajectory in the company. And we're both working. We both got married around the same time, but he never took maternity leave, of course. So he had two children, same age. And my husband and I are friends with him. And it's not about him. He's a great guy. We're still friends. But we both were up for a position of like an executive producer of just a big job. 
more money, big job. And I'm like, okay, I deserve this job. And I think maybe I'm going to just keep doing this and I'll be able to afford my nanny more and I'm going to do this. And so I was in an interview and uh, the guy says to me, you know, I know you and I know him. And listen, I've worked with your husband. I know your husband. And I look at that ring on your finger and I think to myself, he needs the job more than you do. I was like, really? Uh, so he, it was, it was a stunning like blow, like, uh, you know, this is in the early nineties. So it, oh, how painful you know, that kind of sexism. Uh-huh. It was terrible. You know, but I, I never would thought for a minute, but he said, I'll never forget it. He said, I know your husband. I know you guys. I look at that ring on your finger. I know where you live. This other guy, Paul, he needs this job more than you do. And I was just like, absolutely stunned. Because really, he didn't know a damn thing about me or whatever. No, and those are the moments that are so painful. You know, we think, we we keep hearing things like, you know, you've come a long way, baby. And yes, we have come a long way from a certain point. But when you end up in those situations like that, you are so keenly aware of the box that we are as women constantly put into. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's no question that, you know, you, I mean, I was just, I am not one to not know what to say. I, but I was absolutely paralyzed. I don't remember how it all played out. I just remember that I felt so sick that I thought I was going to throw up Mm -hmm. that I left there going, I I don't want to do this anymore. Like, this is gross. I don't see my kids, you know? Yeah. It was a nice paycheck and, you know, I didn't want it anymore. And that was like, the moment was like, no way. I'm not, I'm done. So they gave the job to this other guy and I quit. And I'm going to see what it's like to do like freelance work. And I did. I was really happy with the freelance thing. I had my kids. I could be home when I wanted to with them. It was great. I covered the Olympics. I went to Sydney, oh, Australia as a, as a producer for the, the Olympics. And I did some very cool stories. And I worked for Dateline, NBC. And the Today Show. And so it was good. I transferred sort of over into a little bit more national news. I got out of local news. That was really good. I was home with my kids. And then I was like, well, I didn't really want to do the NBC thing anymore. I just, I got so like into being around my kids. I remember getting calls for a story going, you know, I don't remember one of them had me. I don't know what she had, some recital or something like that. And I was like, I don't really want to go work. I want to be home. So I slowed out of that and I started writing for just like the LA Times, the Daily Breeze, some local magazines. And that was good for a while. And then I was one day, my oldest was in, in I think, maybe second grade. And I was volunteering in the library one day. And I was like, this would be fun. Like, I like this school library. This is a good vibe in here. I can handle this. And I found out that there was a job opening. And so I went and interviewed. And he's like, what are you doing here? Like, you're way overqualified for this. I'm like, I know. But this is kind of what I'm evolved into. And I really want to do it. So he said, what are you hired? 
I hope that you enjoyed that medley of episodes from some of the most amazing people that I am honored and truly delighted to call my friends. I'm just so excited to be closing in on a year of podcasting. So please come back next week when I share another medley of the most highly rated episodes of this year in celebration of 52 weeks of inspiring talks. Check the show notes for links to each episode so that you can listen to them in their entirety. And also keep sending me your questions and suggestions. Please take a moment to rate this episode. Your rating really does move this podcast closer to the top of searches so that my friends and I can reach more people. I'm looking forward to sharing more upcoming In the Company of Friends talks with you. So please be sure to follow me on the socials and the dot com all at the Queen Trail Podcast. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-I-N-T-R-E-L-L-E Podcast. I am Syl Annan, the Queen Trail, and until next time, I wish you passion, grace, adventure, friendship, elegance, and beauty.